0: I'd like to read to you from 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Chuck Colson, in his book entitled The Body tells a story that took place in the 90s, but I think it's every bit as relevant in our own day. Chuck Colson was the right-hand uh, man to Richard Nixon during the Watergate uh, trials. He was sentenced to prison. Uh, Chuck Colson came to know Jesus Christ while in prison. Uh, after prison, he established a phenomenally significant ministry to people in prison, prison fellowship. And uh, just a few years ago, went, uh, went, to be with, went to be with the Lord. In this very important book entitled, The Body, he describes having a conversation with two very close friends, a couple. And over dinner, this couple was describing to him how excited they were about the new church they were going to, how, how good they felt about it, how good they felt after they left church, and how, how very um, inspiring the messages were. And they just felt so good about it. And, and so Chuck says, well, what church are you going to? They said, well, it's the local Unitarian Church. And Chuck Colson thought, well, maybe they're pulling my legs. These are, these are pretty solid people. I've known these people a long time. And so he said, you're just pulling my leg, aren't you? You're just uh, making a joke. You're not going to a Unitarian Church, are you? And they sat there stunned and shocked because they realized he was a little bit bewildered. And they said, yes, we are going to a Unitarian church. It's it's fantastic. We feel so good when we leave. So very inspired from, from the messages. And Chuck Colson said, don't you realize the Unitarians are a cult? That Unitarianism is not Christianity. It's not like going to a Methodist church or a Baptist church or a Presbyterian church. It is a genuine, authentic cult. And they said, Chuck, are you sure about that? Pretty sure, he said. They don't believe in the triune God. That is, they reject the Trinity. They reject the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you don't believe in the Trinity, you don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, you're a cult, not a church. They said, we feel so good when we leave. And Chuck goes on to write about the consumer mentality that has infiltrated the church. That people choose churches by how they feel. Not by what they believe or what they do, but by how it makes them feel. And this consumer mentality that really crept into the church with the the attractional model of church growth has just continued to grow and mature and develop and so you see people basically making the decision about where they will go to church based upon how they feel. Well, if you're a guest with us, we've started a series of sermons on the church. Something we do either in the summer or in the fall is we often read a book together congregationally. Like several years ago, we did Stop Dating the Church, and then we thought about what the church is and what the church does. Last year we read Tom Rainer's book, I Am a Church Member, and we, we preached messages that, that uh, corresponded along the lines of what we were reading congregationally uh, in that book. And, and this year we're reading the book, uh, I Will, by Tom Rainer, about how to become an outwardly focused church. We sold over 300 copies, and so when you consider people that are, uh, that are singles and couples, the, the vast majority of our church is, has, uh, has bought this book. Uh, some are reading it. I saw several sit, uh, sent me pictures on my, on my phone uh, out by the beach or pool on vacation, and they showed me that they were uh, reading through the book. Some are reading it around the table with their, with their children, and we chose the book because it's simple enough for the youngest Christian to read and appreciate and understand, for the oldest Christian who is more mature and maybe seasoned in their faith to to get some understanding, some better understanding about the church, And, and then for families to be able to read it maybe over the dinner table a few pages at night and help their children to have a greater love and appreciation for the church. But what you find is that prognosticators are saying the church is in decline, the church is in the twilight of its usefulness. Well, I want to suggest to you that whatever the prognosticators say about the demise of the church, it's much premature. Because the Bible says Jesus Christ is building the church. And Jesus Christ is the Lord of the church. And if Christ is building the church and is the Lord of the church, he can say definitively and authoritatively, The gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. But what you often find in books about the church is books that tell people what they ought to do. This is what you ought to do. This is what you ought to do. Well, there's a place for that. If you're a part of a church, there are responsibilities. If you're a part of a church, there are obligations. But what I say to our staff often is, If you spend all of your time trying to convince people who don't love the church that they ought to do certain things, you'll find they may start to do them, but if they don't love the church, they'll quit doing them. That that who we are determines what we do. Or we could put it this way, who we are determines what we don't do. So you can tell a lot about what a person believes about the church by what they do or by what they don't do. You can tell them, do they love the church? Are they married to the church, like Jesus is married to the church? Or do they date the church, like Josh Harris in his book, Stop Dating the Church? I want us to look at this passage this morning. It was written by the Apostle Peter. It was written to young Gentile Christians who had been converted out of paganism and out of, out of intense, dark, spiritual places. And what he begins with as he talks about the church as the church's savior and who the church is before he moves into describing what the church does. What we often do is we tell you what, we, what you ought to do. What the Bible does, it tells, you, tells us who we are. And then as we look at who we are and we compare it to what we do, we can see if the two are commensurate, one with, with the other. Well, Peter begins with the church's savior. Who does the church believe in? Who does the church follow? Who, does the, who, who is building the church? And so he begins with Jesus. Notice he says, I'm coming to him as to a living stone. Underline that phrase, living stone. Go with me to verse 6. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious corner stone, You look in the latter part of verse 7, this became the very cornerstone. So when he begins to talk about the church, he begins with Jesus. And he says, those who are a part of the church are those who have come to Jesus. They've come to Jesus in saving faith. They now come to Jesus in worship and service. Jesus is their Lord and their Savior. And so Jesus is the one that established the church. Jesus is the one that is building the church Jesus is the central figure of the church. And so he says, Jesus is a living stone, a choice stone, a precious stone, a cornerstone. He's the crucial person in the church. And and what Peter does there in verse 6 and the latter part of verse 7 is he goes to the Old Testament, his Bible, and he substantiates his point that Jesus is the crucial person person of the church and so Jesus is the one that we come to in fact Jesus is not only the crucial person of the church he is the crucial person of eternity that is he says there's only two places that a person will ultimately go one to judgment one to eternal life one to heaven one to hell and heaven and hell are determined by one's attitude to Jesus A person's thoughts about Jesus ultimately determines whether they will go to heaven or hell, whether they're saved or lost, whether they will experience eternity with God or eternity apart from God. And those who believe in Jesus are those who come to Jesus. And he says those people will never be disappointed. They will never be disappointed. They may be disappointed in their pastor because I will let you down. and Well, in fact, you've probably let me down. Uh, I'll forgive you if you forgive me, so we'll just we'll let it go at that. And so, if you're in church very long, the people in the church are going to let you down. Because we're all sinners. We're all being conformed in the image of Jesus. We're all on the pathway of, of sanctification that is slowly becoming more and more like Jesus. So people don't do what we hope they will do. They don't sometimes say what we hope they will say. And sometimes they overlook us or they, uh, they don't treat us nicely. People will let us down. And we'll be disappointed. But those who believe in him, he says, will never be disappointed. But those who reject him, those who reject him, he's not a choice stone or a living stone or a precious stone or the cornerstone. He is a crushing stone. Notice in verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock. Of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you, that's not who you are, that's not who I am, but that's who they are. They will experience judgment because of what they believed about Jesus. And what they believe about Jesus is evidenced by the way they lived. Notice he says there in verse 8, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. See, who we are determines what we do. Who we are works its way out in our actions and choices. And so, he begins with the church's savior. He points our attention to Jesus. He is the one that's building the church. When we gather together, he is the one that we worship. But But notice that he he quotes here from Isaiah to substantiate that fact. But he also quotes a little bit later from the book of Exodus. In fact, let me read to you a passage from Exodus that I think sounds very much like what we just read in 1 Peter. It's Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... And you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So he's speaking to Moses. God is. He says, this is what I want you to say to them. If they will enter into covenant with me. If they will be faithful and loyal to me. They will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Well that's exactly what he says toward the end of the passage. Well, Paul writes something very similar to that in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. He says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are being built together into a dwelling place of God. What I want you to notice is he transitions from talking about Jesus to talking about us, the church, the churches, the Savior's church. And the first thing that he says about us is that we are living stones. In fact, look at verse 4 again. And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. What he's saying about us is that we are people stones, we're people stones. We're being built together into a temple. Now, we're individually the temple of God and dwelt by the Spirit of God. And wherever we are, God is always with us. But what he was saying in Exodus, what Peter is bringing out here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, what Paul is bringing out in Ephesians 2, verses 20 and 21, is that when we gather together, there's something unique about us. We are the temple of God in a way that is beyond temples when we are separate one from another. That when we gather together, something magnificent and spectacular and phenomenal should take place. If we had time, we could go back to the book of Exodus. So Moses speaks those words to the children of Israel. And the children of Israel enter into covenant relationship with God. And God's glory comes down. God's glory comes down like a consuming fire on Mount Sinai. God's glory is the manifestation of the presence of God. It's his greatness, his grandeur. It's his magnanimous nature manifested to his people. And he's saying about the church that this is the purpose of gathering together for the manifest presence of God. That when we come together, something spectacular can happen that doesn't happen in as a a monumental way as when we're alone on a mountainside or sitting by a creek or in our prayer closet. That when the people of God come together and they worship the Son of God and their hearts are crying out for the presence of God, the glory of God comes down in a way that He doesn't come down in the prayer closet of an individual person. We are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're bricks and mortar and stones that are being built together. And what we're longing for every time we gather together is for God's presence to come down. Now we know that God is omnipresent. That means God is everywhere present to the same degree simultaneously. So he's just as much here as he is out there. But what we want is the manifest presence of God. What we want is for God to come down like he did on Mount Sinai. What we want is for God to come down like he did on the Mount of Transfiguration. What we want is like when the disciples were praying in the upper room and they had already been persecuted and threatened that they shouldn't speak in the name of Jesus. And, and Luke says the, the place where they were praying was, was shaken. We want to be shaken. We want to see the manifest presence of the glory of God. That's what the church of Jesus Christ is. It is his church where the spirit manifests his presence. But then, excuse me, he changes his metaphors slightly. He goes from saying that we're people stones to saying that we're priests inside the temple serving the Savior. Look with me in the latter, the beginning of, of verse 5. You also are living stones and being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Turn over with me to verse 9, where he says, after the quotation from Hosea, he says, So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we're priests. In the Old Testament, the priest was an intermediary. The priest would speak to God for the people, and the people would speak to the priest, and then the priest would speak to God. So the priest would listen to God, and then he would speak to the people, and the people would speak to the priest, and the priest would speak to God. In the temple, it was the priest that would offer the sacrifices. It was the priest that would, that would uh, place the animal on the altar. It's the priest that would drain the blood. It's the priest that would, that would uh, do the, the primary engagement of worship in the temple. Uh, but there's no longer individual priests. We are all priests. Men and women, we are a part of the priesthood. We're a part of the people of God. That's a part of what it means to be the people of God. And as priests who minister in the temple, he says that we we are to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Sometimes it's difficult to know, well, what are these sacrifices? Is it preaching and leading in worship and uh, and praying the prayer for the offering. What are the spiritual sacrifices that, that we're to offer up to God? This is a part of what it means to be the church. It means that we are living stones, that we are priests in the temple of God and the, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And And fortunately, the Bible doesn't leave us to guess at what these spiritual sacrifices are. It gives us several examples so that we're not left wondering as to the kinds of things that are pleasing and acceptable to God. For example, in Ephesians 5 and verse 2, the Apostle Paul wrote, And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, An offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So he says, I want you to be a loving person. I want you to walk in love. And the way that I want you to love is the way that Jesus has loved you. And so how did Jesus love us? He loved us by dying for us. He gave himself up for us. And while hell thought it was winning the battle as Jesus was dying on the cross... There was a fragrant aroma ascending to heaven that brought great pleasure to the scent and the nostrils of God. Jesus was purchasing for God a people for his own possession. And he says, just like Jesus laid his life down for you, that's the way I want you to lay your life down for others. And that's an acceptable sacrifice. It's a voluntary act of self Devotion and self-dedication. Say, hey, Pastor, what what might it look like? Well, it might look like someone in your in your BFG sending out a mass email and saying, you know, I need a ride to church tomorrow. My car's not working, and and uh, I have no way to get there. And and you're thinking, you know, I've I've already got a busy I've already got a busy schedule. That means I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to uh, to run them home. It means, well, rather than thinking of the reasons why not, we begin to think of the reasons why we can well, I can rearrange my schedule. I'll just have to leave a little bit earlier. I'll have to get home just a, just a tad bit later. And, and we think, well, that's no big deal. And maybe even the person that you pick up, they think, well, it's no big deal. But when you respond to that email, either consciously or unconsciously, you're saying, I'm doing this because I love Jesus. And this brother or sister is a part of the body of Christ. They're a, they're a people stone. And I think I can take the time to do that. Now we think, well, preaching is more important than that. Not in God's eyes. Leading worship more important than that. Not in God's eyes. Securing the building we got, uh, as we've got security. Maybe that's more important. Not in God's eyes. God accepts every act of sacrificial service as a fragrant aroma and offering. You may think, well, I'm so much older now. I just I can't work in the preschool anymore, and you know it's, it's it's just enough for me to get here and and to get home. But you know what? You can do. You can you can be the friendliest of people. In fact, we've got some of the most friendly people in the world in our church. And it may be that you can't serve in the preschool because of your because of your health, your age, and you think. All the things I used to love to do in the church they're now diminishing. And you have a sense of you have a sense of of a void in your life. Because you think that the best days for you giving glory to God by what you did are now past you. Not at all. They just change. Because while they might not be as obvious or observable sitting by a a guest or a visitor Speaking in a good word to someone that maybe is struggling, those things are acts of sacrificial service and a part of what it means to be a priest among the people of God. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, Paul writes, Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit, which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you sent, A fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. When you put money in the offering plate this morning, or maybe last week when you got paid and you uh, went to uh, direct deposit or however however, online giving and, and you gave some money to the church, if it is a sacrifice to you, it doesn't matter how much it is. If it was a sacrifice. What might be a sacrifice to me might not be a sacrifice to you. What is a sacrifice to you might not be a sacrifice to me. That's why God's calculator isn't like our calculators. Because God doesn't measure things by the amount. He measures them by the sacrifice. And so, when the offering plate is passed, God's, God's getting a whiff. When you allow the offering plate to pass by because you give online giving. That, that's just fine because all you have to do is you sit and you move, move uh, money from your account to the church account or however that works. If it's sacrificial, God, God's getting a good whiff of it. And you can turn it into an act of worship if you'll just stop for just a moment. Just a moment and say, Father in heaven, I love you and I want you to know that I'm giving this money because I love you, and you make the transaction, or maybe it's it's direct, depo- uh, direct deposit out of your, out of your account. And there's all kinds of ways people give. About 35 to 40 percent of our monies uh, come in that way now, and so you get ready. You look at your statement. You're going through your your uh, your account, and you look at the church, and just stop, and take what can become a perfunctory kind of activity, and just say, Lord. That's because I love you. I didn't even think about it when it came out, but as I look on it now, it's because I, I love you, and you are offering a sacrifice to God. And I tell you, most of you are doing, are doing well. Or many of you are doing well. Just the other day, I, I put up on... Someone sent it to me, and they put it on the, on the church Facebook site. That I, I can't tell from the, from the document itself. We are either the top-giving church to the North American Mission Board for the Annie Armstrong Easter Offering, or one of the top. Since it's obscure, I'm just going to say, we're the top. And then, and then the Lord can correct me one day, or the North American Mission Board can say, hey, I heard on your website that you're saying you're the top, you're actually third. Then uh, make it more specific for me. But until then, uh, that is a picture of sacrifice. People sometimes say, why can't we have another campus? Well, we could have another campus if we kept giving to the North American Mission Board, if we kept giving to the International Mission Board. If we took most of our GCO money and we, and we, we corralled it all in, we could open a couple, of other, a couple of other campuses. We could multiply ourselves in a couple of different ways. But I, I just don't think that's, I don't think it would be pleasing for the Lord for our church to take money that primarily is going out and then say, we're just going to bring it in and we're going to use it for the propagation of of our local congregation. And so some churches make that decision to the glory of God, and God leads them, and and I don't criticize that at all because they've got to make the decisions that God leads them to make. But for us, I want us to keep doing what we're doing, and it's a part of sacrificial giving. Uh, The author of Hebrews Put it this way, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Do you know that when we sing and our minds are engaged, and sometimes my mind drifts, sometimes I'm thinking about my, uh, my message, sometimes I'm trying to think, you know, uh, I hope we get to eat somewhere that's not gluten-free, and, and all of these things are sometimes fighting in my mind for my attention, but in my better moments... I'm spiritually reaching out, not with my hands, but sometimes with my hands, pulling it back in going, in, going to my mind and pulling back in. I want to sing loud. I want to sing bold. I want to be confident. And with every song we sing, there's like, there's a fragrance going to heaven. And so that's why I, I'm so grateful that you sing loud, that you sing bold, that you sing confidently. That regardless of the song, what matters most is if it's theologically accurate. If it's saturated in gospel truth, I'm willing to sing it. And so, heartfelt worship. Or Paul put it this way, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. In Romans chapter 12. And so, we are kingdom priests every single one of us, And because we're priests, we're offering up spiritual sacrifices. But he also says this, we are a people belonging to God. We're a people belonging to God. In verses 6 through 9, he focuses on this idea that we belong to God. He says, we are a chosen race. We are a holy nation. We are a people for God's own possession. To say we're a chosen race is to say God chose us. But as of all the people in the ancient world, God chose Abraham. Out of all the nations in the ancient world, God chose Israel. Out of the people in this world, God chose us. Not because we were more beautiful, not because we were more intelligent, not because we were smarter or wiser or more sophisticated, but because He loved us. We are a chosen race. He's always previous, He's always provenient, He's always first. Before we ever loved him, he loved us. Before we chose him, he chose us. Before we thought about him, he thought about us. Before we took one step toward him, he was already right in our spiritual space. We're a chosen race, we're a holy nation. To be a holy nation is to be a people that's set apart for God. The word holy means to be set apart. For example, in the ancient world, the Sabbath day was holy to Israel. Because it was different than the other six days. It was set apart for the worship and service of God. It was a holy day because it was God's day in a particularly specific and intentional way. The temple. Of all of the buildings in the ancient world, of all of the structures in the ancient world, the temple was different than every other building because it was a holy building. It was set apart for the sacrificial system. It was the place where, where God's people would bring their offerings and their sacrifices to him. The utensils, the utensils that were used in the temple were holy, consecrated, set apart. They didn't look that much different than the utensils that a wealthy person would use in their home. But they weren't for secular purposes. They weren't for ordinary purposes. They weren't for just day-to-day living. They They were holy and set apart for God. And that's what he says we are. We are a holy nation with God as our king. We're a part of the kingdom of God. We are a holy nation. We've been set apart for God. And we're a people for God's own possession. We belong to God because he bought us. We belong to God because he purchased us with the blood of his own son. We belong to him, and that means he treasures us. He loves us. You know, a lot of us, we don't even love ourselves. We loathe ourselves. And there are other people we we find it almost impossible to love. But you know what? God loves that person. God help us not to love those whom God loves. And God help us to think about ourselves appropriately. When God looks at us, he says, you are a treasured possession of mine. I bought you with the blood of my son. I indwell you with the Holy Spirit. I've clothed you in a righteousness that is not your own. I invite you to come boldly into my presence. I providentially and sovereignly direct the course of your life for your good and for my glory. I am leading you to an eternal home. We belong to him. So when we gather together, I don't care what the prognosticators say about the demise of the church, we are God's people. We are invested with God's spirit. We are seeking to live for God's glory. We are not who the world says we are. We are who God says we are. And that leads us to the last thought. We are recipients of God's mercy, therefore we declare God's praises. We are recipients of God's mercy, therefore we declare God's praises. He's going to make references back to the book of Hosea. You remember Hosea's wife cheated on him and became a prostitute. and She had children that were not Hosea's children. And yet God said, go after her. Go after her. And so he says in verse, in verse 9, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We declare the excellencies of God when we're together. When we sing, we're singing to one another. We're encouraging one another to sing louder and more boldly and more confidently. But then when we leave this building, we don't stop declaring the praises of God. We continue to declare his praises to those who are in need of him, to those who are enslaved to the prince of the power of the air, to those who live in moral and spiritual darkness. We declare to them God's praise. One of the most encouraging Facebook posts that I've read over the last several weeks was one of our members, a very sweet lady. She posted, uh, for 33 years, I've never invited anybody to church overtly, directly, intentionally. She said the other day through a conversation, a series of situations, and she put this on, this on Facebook, so it can be encouraging to you as well. She said, I invited my first person to church. Do you know what? That's what it means to to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know, some people maybe are 33 years of age and have never invited anybody to church. Some people are 65 years of age. Or if they've invited somebody to church, it's been maybe decades ago. As we move toward I Love My Church Sunday, the impetus behind that is for us to reach lost people with the gospel. And so we we are recipients of God's mercy and therefore we should declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness. Let me conclude today with with a quote from Paul Tripp. Something that Paul Tripp wrote about the church several years ago. Paul Tripp writes your life is bigger than a good job, an understanding spouse, and non-delinquent kids. It's bigger than beautiful gardens, nice vacations, and fashionable clothes. In reality, you are a part of something immense. Something that began before you were born and will continue After you die, God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into his kingdom, and progressively shaping them into his likeness. And he wants you to be a part of it. That's the church. That's something to live for. That's something to be committed to. That's something to relish in. It's something to get off the sidelines. I tell, as I said earlier, I tell my staff, you can coerce people who live on the fringes their entire life to come in for a brief period of time, but the energy that you exert is going to be wasted because they're going to go right back to the fringes. If If they're living on the fringes, it reflects who they are. But if you pour your life into those who are committed to the church, those who love the church, those who serve the church, those people will go out. And you will build an army of Christ-like followers that can make a kingdom impact in this community. Now, you may be here today, and what you've just come to grips with again and been reminded of is how substantial the church is and how substantial it should be in your life, how important it should be in your life. And as you sing in just a moment, we're going to have time of commitment. As you're singing, just reaffirm that commitment. Just say, God, thank you. In your heart, just say, God, thank you that I'm a part of the church, blood-bought member of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let who I am work its way out in what I do. Uh, For others of you, it might just be that, you know, maybe you've forgotten what it means to be a priest. And the treadmill of life has just caused you to forget, hey, it's not preaching sermons and leading in worship and doing those things it's voluntary acts of self sacrifice it's giving sacrificially it's coming to church and singing loudly and boldly and confidently because i'm a priest and maybe you'll just say father i just i just needed to be reminded of that thank you maybe you've decided hey uh, the preaching's not much but i like the singing and the people and i've decided to make this my church home we'd invite you to come forward so that we could walk you through the membership process we got a, a great group of folks in First Step this morning. And so we'd love to have you uh, explore the possibility of joining us. Or maybe you don't even know Jesus. You could be here today and you're just visiting, thinking, and exploring. And maybe you're not ready to talk to someone face-to-face, but let me, let me say this to you. If you genuinely and honestly explore the message of the gospel... And who Jesus really is, I'm thoroughly convinced that you will end up being saved. I've, we have absolutely nothing to fear about people genuinely and authentically questioning the claims of Christianity and Jesus Christ. Or maybe you've been doing that and you just think today, I'd like to, I'd like to go ahead and talk to someone about how to, how to go from darkness to light. If you come forward, obviously, we're not saying you're a Christian by walking the aisle. Nobody's ever been saved by walking an aisle, but just by coming down, it allows one of our staff members to introduce you to someone that, that can talk with you about where you are in your relationship with Christ. I'm going to ask if you'll stand, and I'm going to lead us in a, in a brief word of prayer. Let's, we'll all join together in song in just a moment. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you so very, very much that... The Apostle Peter writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit helps us to understand more clearly and definitively from your perspective what the church is, who the church is. And so in these final moments, we pray in Jesus' name that you would work it in our lives for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.